My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. On this week's episode of the Wonder Dome, I have the wonderful good fortune of connecting with David Sauvage. David is an empathy expert and also an empath, someone who is deeply attuned to the emotional states of people around him. His journey towards embracing his ability to not only understand other people's emotions, but help them The other people also understand their own emotions and to teach others how to develop these skills is really a remarkable one because it was in fact fraught with so much challenge and struggle around embracing his own emotions, which you'll hear in our conversation today. And just that just deeply moved me because when I look at my own life and all the places where I find myself resisting whatever emotion is coming up, anxiety, worry, anger, frustration. When I find myself repressing that or trying to distance myself from that, the outcomes are never good. So David's invitation in this conversation is to, there's a moment when he says, the most unlucky thing that could happen to any of us is that we live our whole lives without being forced to confront that which we're most afraid of or that which causes us the most pain, which is such a counter cultural stance in this world of ours that's so committed to, to comfort and convenience and avoidance and politeness, all of it. If you care at all about living life fully expressing yourself fully, helping others express themselves fully. If you care at all about being someone who does this professionally or just in your own day-to-day life as a partner, as a parent, as a friend, as a roommate, this conversation is for you. David has spent the past decade or more deepening into this ability to help people become more empathic. He's best known for his performance art, doing intuitive readings in front of audiences, which he hopes to bring back again in 2022. His work was also featured in The Guardian and The New York Times. He created something called The Empath Pop-Up, an experimental space for connection and healing in New York City. And uh, he also has a book called Healing Heals the Healer Too, and of course, The Way of the Empath. So there's lots to dig into if this conversation resonates with you. I can't wait for you to get a taste of what becomes possible as David and I enter the church of what wants to happen. And that reference will make sense soon. (sighs) So let's get settled in and hear what David has for us. Hey, David, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I love conversations like these for all sorts of reasons. One of which is that you and I literally just met for the first time 20 minutes ago. And one thing that I noticed as we shared and and you connected is this sort of spirit of welcoming or inviting or sort of letting come through you that you seem really anchored in. And you mirrored that back to me too. So I want to say thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. And then there's a part of me as you sort of shared like, hey, here are all the things we could talk about. There's a little part of me that's like, 
oh, okay, Andy, like, make sure you talk about the right thing first or something. And I'm just like enjoying that part of me, get a little worried and nervous. And so, so that is actually making me want to like do something a little different, which is to just say, rather than ask any question right now, other than where are you feeling called to start? Let's see what happens. I like your that. reflection that between us, um, this shared approach of maybe listening or allowing or trusting. Yeah. It's a place that feels very much like home to me. I didn't used to operate this way, but when I started to operate this way, I could imagine no other way of operating. Mm. And I guess I feel like putting some words to that that will make what we're saying here as concrete as possible. How's that sound? Mm. So good. <laughs> I'm really psyched for that. Uh, okay. unless, unless you have some words already coming to you, one thing that immediately sparked my curiosity was your statement that there was a time when you didn't operate this way. And then there was a time when you did. And so I'm so curious about that space, whether that was a moment or a journey or something that feels really ripe and interesting to me, but hmm. yeah, what's um, maybe what can do is put words to this way of operating and then try to share how I came to operate this way. Yeah. That sounds fun. Okay. Yeah. I said a few minutes ago that we are both members of the church of what wants to happen. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, I've invented that phrase, but if somebody else has invented it, it's just because they're also a member of that same church <laughs> and it came through them too. Yeah. And the church of what wants to happen is a way of being that prioritizes the organic emergence of whatever is alive. So if you're feeling something strong, let's say you're feeling sadness, just throwing this out there as an example, in this way of operating, that sadness is really relevant because that's what you're feeling. The way we are used to operating and the way we have been conditioned to operate is by having an abstract sense of the way things are supposed to be or the way we're supposed to be, and then perpetually comparing ourselves to that way of being. And this new way of being that we are both advocates for is about making space for what is already happening. Mm. So if there's an intense feeling arising, both of our attentions will go to that feeling. If there's a thought that bubbles up, our question is not, is this the right thought? Which is what most people think when they think about their thoughts. Mm. Our, we orient around the idea that that thought is bubbling up for a reason. And there's something worth exploring. Mm. This is uh, a deep trust in the organic expression of our beings. It's like a trust that what is coming up on its own without force is the thing that is worth honoring. Mm. And that is what I'm calling the church of what wants to happen. And that because we both abide by that or seem to, will definitely be the approach of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and so actually, I want to really honor that. There's a lot coming through as you share and articulate that. First, uh, welcome fellow believer here. Thank you for naming the church of which we both, we both attend. Feels good to have a name for it. So thank you for that. Um, one thought that came through and I was like, oh, nice. Nice. David's inviting me to really pay attention to this thought was just a, maybe a, a data point 
around the beauty of this approach, uh, because I know that for me, part of my journey was really a, the part of me that, that was the persona, the mask, who still, I know him well and can summon him when I need to, but he was very terrified of express, like crying in public, for instance, just to use your sadness example because we're not supposed to cry in public, especially if we're, especially if we're a man or identified as one. Mm -hmm. And the, the beauty of what you're describing is, is discovering that actually not only will we be okay if we cry in public, that actually life will be way more joyful and meaningful if we know how to fully let that sadness and whatever the source of that sadness is, come in and through us and and express that on the other side of that ability is like one you can handle it because i think a lot of people are get afraid afraid of how they'll appear afraid that it will overwhelm them but i'm like my experience is like no you can handle the sadness actually and not only can you but you totally should because on the other side of it is you're also your ability to handle way more joy and way more ecstasy and way more like whatever the sort of widest aperture or spectrum of emotions are your ability to move through them widens all of them and widens and deepens all of them. And so I'll say all that as a preface to say, then like there's maybe someone listening who's like, all right, that sounds really nice guys. Your church, your church of two sounds lovely here, but uh, I don't cry in public. I'm not going to let, that's just not going to let that happen. And, uh, and then the random thought that came through was, was actually an interview I heard with Paul McCartney probably over 10 years ago now, because I'm a songwriter. And someone asked Paul, like, how did you guys remember your songs? How did you know what songs are going to be? Or no, this is the question. How did you know which songs are going to be hits? And his answer was, well, just the ones we remembered. <laughs> like, just the ones we remembered. So there's just sort of this beautiful, like, here are the Beatles, arguably, like, in this world of accolades and credentials and success top, top of the heap, whatever that heap is and their method such as it was, was to just finish the songs that they remembered the next day. They came up with a song the day before. And so talk about just like letting something arise as opposed to trying to, to manage it. And I guess I share amen. all of that. I would love to see. Yeah. What was that? Amen. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, what, what does that evoke for you? Well, first, we need to put a, a bit of a warning label on what you said, I think, or I want to put a bit of a warning label. Okay, please. Um, yeah. Since, since um, apart from being a, a, a member, a passionate member of the Church of What Wants to Happen, I am also uh, a teacher of emotional intelligence. And it is true that you can usually handle the sadness, you listening. And that if you can make a space for yourself to experience it, you are building capacity for joy and excitement. You're also opening up to the possibility that there's beauty in the sadness itself. Mm. Mm. But it is not true that you can handle every emotion on your own. Mm. And um, for instance, uh, fear, when it turns to panic or terror, usually cannot be regulated by one person, you usually need somebody else there to co-regulate with you. Mm. So if you have a lot of sadness and you can allow it up and to flow, that's beautiful. But if there's a lot of fear around expressing that sadness, mm. that fear, you might need somebody to hold your hand through. Mm. Mm. And if the idea of having somebody hold your hand through emotions is in itself evoking of great fear, then you are in a hole that you will really, really need help through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love that distinction. Uh, um, and your question about how I made that switch, there's a paradox in the church of what wants to happen. And this will be one minute of esoteric stuff and then followed by concrete biographical stuff, which is, whether or not you are a conscious member of this belief system or this church, you are still a member of it. So uh, 
we could call it Taoism if you like. Yeah. Uh, you can say that there's a natural organic flow that those of us who are in this belief want to follow. We are we are striving through allowing to align with the underlying embodied organic truth of the moment, and we are doing so consciously. But then there's all those folks, as in most people in the world, who would find what I just said to be silly and um, uh, meaningless, and their core values are going to be something very different. For instance, money or comfort or status or power um, or maybe just being in good relationships with people. And those uh, values, core values, might seem to be very different than the one you and I share, except that when you hold values that run against the flow, when you are a member, for instance, of the Church of Capitalism, and your highest value is the accumulation of resources at scale, if that is your true highest value, then you are also a member of our church because you are going to experience a lot of pain. And that pain is going to guide you toward what wants to happen. So you don't have to believe in it consciously to be a member. The whole natural flow of the universe is pushing you toward the realization that what wants to happen is the thing that needs attending to, whether you like it or not. <laughs> okay and i also want to add like a, a beautiful maybe not a warning label but a beautiful like i just love those distinctions you made and if nothing else i hear you inviting people who are suffering right now into in a really gentle and loving way not to say like go be tough and handle your suffering and but just to sort of say like you're you're not suffering in vain your life or, or the, or the universe or your experience or whatever you want to call it is trying to tell you something. Yes. And, and, it, and it might even just be trying to tell you that like the world that we've built for ourselves is, is, has some things that you need to address that maybe it's not even about you and your problem, but it's that pain is mm -hmm. trying to tell you something. Mm -hmm. And if you can learn how to listen to that, then whether or not you de de decide to become a, a conscious believer in the church of, you know, what wants to happen, life will start to shift. Yes. Yeah. And it's even cooler than that. If you don't learn to listen to that and you really fight your whole life long to avoid engaging with what is most alive in you, um, well, then you will be shown whether you learn or not, because yeah. you will get sick. You will be overwhelmed with anxiety, despair will take you, hopelessness, you'll ruin relationships. And to not to put a positive spin on that, but just to see that as the intelligence. You don't even mm -hmm. have to want to learn it. It is, mm -hmm. it is the class you are in, whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so this is good. Maybe you sharing your story will be helpful because I'm, I'm noticing that, that, and this is maybe getting more towards the warning label, which is to say that we the let's call it the church of capitalism since you use that language like if that's the church that we think we all live in mm -hmm. or that we don't even call it we just think that's reality mm -hmm. in that context there's a collective message that says your pain is your problem deal with it out of sight like control it medicate it uh uh do whatever you need to do to function because the gears need to keep turning mm -hmm. right and so there's a i want to just honor that everything you said is so fucking beautiful and true. And I like my deep wish is if we stopped right now, everyone would be like, Oh, this thing that I'm suffering is actually somewhere hidden in there is exactly what I most need. It's mm. a beautiful invitation, but also to just acknowledge that we do produce more pain by resisting or by trying to dominate or repress or suppress mm. and yeah. that we're encouraged to. So there's just a, like, there's like a bit of a catch 22 about how do we help ourselves when our collective consciousness or culture doesn't seem to want us to, how do we help ourselves step towards the embrace as opposed to the repress? Uh, well, in my case, it was just too much pain. Yeah. So yeah. I, th I feel like if you're, if you're lucky, the pain of living an artificial life will become so overwhelming that you can't help but engage authentically with yourself. Mm. If, if mm. you're lucky, mm. that pain becomes overwhelming. Mm. If you're really unlucky, 
that pain just hangs around your whole life long, never becoming so unbearable that you have to deal with it mm. and never alleviating so that you find real joy. Mm. That sucks. And I'm sorry. Uh, there was, didn't feel like a, maybe at the time there was a vague sense of decisions being made, but in retrospect, knowing now what I do, I don't believe I was making conscious decisions to work through my issues. It looked that way at the time, but I think what was happening was that I was just in so much pain that I couldn't do anything other than try to find a way out. Uh, and so that moment, um, that moment, uh, I feel like sharing this, even though it's uncomfortable. So that's good. Um, nice. Part of being in the church of what wants to happen is a discomfort starts to be something you value because mm -hmm. it means mm -hmm. there's something on the other side that will feel really good if you can work through it. This is a story I've never told um, in public at all. But seven or eight years ago, me and a couple of friends started a company. Um, and it's uh, I was pushed aside from that company. And it was a painful experience. The company, by the way, is now worth many hundreds of millions of dollars. So that pain lingers on. Uh, and when I was pushed out, I felt, uh, pretty lost. And I had a amazing girlfriend at the time named Lena and Lena said, why don't you come to Sweden with me? She's from Sweden. She said, come to Sweden and we'll rent a house. And I was broke and she said she would pay for it. And I said, okay. And we rented a house by a lake in the middle of nowhere. And I remember walking around the middle of nowhere in Sweden. And it was the first time, it's like eight years ago, I guess, the first time where I asked myself, what is really going on? Really, truly. Until that point, most of my 20s and my early 30s was dominated with ambition and failure or what felt to me like failure. There were things I really wanted to achieve. Primarily, I wanted to direct feature films um, and I really wanted to achieve that goal. And, and I really wanted to be recognized for my talent as a filmmaker really badly. And when that need wasn't met, my belief was that I was depressed because I wasn't succeeding in a way I thought I needed to, to be of worth in this world. And when this company, uh, the company didn't implode, when my relationship with the company imploded, mm. That happened simultaneously to a documentary film I really wanted to make, ultimately not being able to be made. And then I just found myself in this black hole. And I was like, there was a, a dawning of the idea that the pain that I was in was not, could not be attributed merely to professional failures. There was like, whoa, this is deeper than a kid who didn't get to make his film. This is deeper than a guy who got kicked out of a company what is this pain? And uh, in those two months in Sweden, I took lots of walks. I rode a boat a lot. I did morning pages per the artist's way. And I really pondered the question and I did not get any answers, but I did feel that there was something in the question that felt alive to me and that that was a, 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 a path I needed to follow. And that led, led the way to an unfolding that uh, around intuition, psychic abilities, empathy, plant medicine, um, and ultimately the church of what wants to happen. Ah, thank you for sharing that, David. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So what just came through to me right now, um, there was an article about your work when there was a period in time when it was safe to do so in New York where you were hosting, I'm actually blanking on the name, so I'm sure you can fill in the gap, but basically you were creating spaces where people could, like pop up empathy circles, something like yes. that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I sense that around the time I was reading that article, you had got already been on quite a journey since, since the, the days in the lake in Sweden. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, 
one of the things I discovered about myself in the, in the kind of dark period of searching was that I had this gift for feeling other people's feelings. And that actually a lot of that pain that I was in all those years was not because I hadn't won an Academy Award. It was because I was carrying the pain of others, mm. absorbing it and absorbing it. Mm. And I got, I found my way to releasing it. And when I released it or most of it, I discovered how sensitive I was moment to moment to people's emotions, to the degree that I could feel what they were feeling in that moment on multiple levels, what they were feeling right now, what they were feeling generally blurred the line between it blurs the line between empathy and intuition. Mm. I started to have fun with it, this gift and turned it into performance art where I do intuitive readings in front of audiences. So I sit with somebody, I take their hand, I close my eyes, I absorb their feelings and I describe to the best of my ability what I feel they're feeling in front of people. And that was a blast. I took on the moniker or the brand of empath, owned it. And empath evolved from these uh, performances to a play where I told the story of how I discovered I had this ability and then did readings in front of the audience. And then uh, I had a, 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 an intuition of taking over a store and creating what I called the empath pop-up. <laughs> for two weeks, I took over a store in the East Village in New York City, put a neon sign in the window that said empath and invited people in to a store that offered empathy and connection. So you'd find yourself walking by uh, 12th Street between A and B and somebody, me or my two friends who created this with me, Bailey or Jess, would say, hey, would you like some empathy or connection <laughs> today? And most people would look at you like you were offering vegetables and would walk away confused. But there were a fair number of people whose eyes opened wide and said, I want that. And I walked <laughs> into this store and people would sit in circles, uh, often for hours. These circles were held by one of the three of us or somebody else who knew how to hold the group together well. And we created spaces for listening and sharing in the middle of New York City for two weeks it was really, it might be the most beautiful thing I've ever done in my life, actually. I'm really proud of it. Um, and it, it was deliberately made for two weeks and it was a huge success in every way, um, both in terms of the number of people who came through, the reactions that we were getting, the feeling I had doing this space, creating a space. I mean, how simultaneously obvious and revolutionary is it to take over a space in New York City and offer empathy and connection authentically? It's like, duh and also whoa yeah yeah <laughs> um, kind of like a culture jamming compassion home run thing um <laughs> and i was going to do it again i was gearing up to do it last spring but then this there was a virus that started to take over and the idea of having strangers meet uh in person seemed hard so it didn't happen but one of my dreams is when the virus abates, I can once again take over, this time a much larger space, this time the dream is in Soho, and for two months take over a huge MC store and offer empathy and connection and healing in the authentic sense uh, to whoever walks in the door. Mm. Yeah, I heard about that virus. I'm sorry that got in your way. It's, yeah. like it's a bummer, way. but yeah, what yeah. can you do? <laughs> ah, That's so fucking cool. I recently learned that the that the root word of radical, actually, now that I'm saying this out loud, it's funny. The root word of radical, radix in the Latin, root. means root. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so this idea that what you were doing was a really radical or revolutionary act, which was, of course, in its nature, to actually invite people back to the roots of what we're about anyways. I mean, the only reason someone buys something in a store is because they need it or they think they need it or they mm. want it right like and if they want it they want it to meet some desire or need that's underneath and often it's it's a poor substitute for co true connection true inspiration true 
being heard and felt and seen and all of the things that it sounds like you were doing for people inside that storefront. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to tell one story from that store. Please. Yeah. Um, so it makes it concrete. And I really feel good about bragging about it because I'm so proud of this <laughs> store. The, a guy came in one day and he said, he'd seen the social media posts and he said, I heard you guys offer like emotional help with stuff. And Bailey, who's one of the people who was working the store with me, she said, yes, we do. What can I help you with? And he said, uh, this song came on and, um, and it reminded me of my cousin who died and I couldn't deal with it, but I heard about this place and I thought maybe you could help me deal with it. Mm. And Bailey said, would you like to listen to this song while I hold you? And he said, yes. And they laid down on the floor, this 40 something year old man, he put his headphones in, he listened to the song and he cried about and grieved his, his, his dead cousin while Bailey held him for 10 minutes. And then he stood up and he looked clearer and cleaner and he shook his body out and he said, I feel so much better. Thank you. And he thanked me for having this store and he thanked Bailey for holding him. And then he left. And it's like that concrete and that beautiful. And that is what is, that is one thing in this world that is so desperately needed and so rarely offered. Ah, oh, Jesus, that's cool. Mm. So you're actually plucking a string for me right now around the question of, of death and mourning. And that wasn't on our menu when we started like, Hey, what should we talk about today before we started recording? But I wonder if that, if you'd be interested in, in having a bit of a conversation about our culture's relationship to mourning and how we do or don't do that. If that is alive for you. I am game to follow. Okay. Yeah. Let me just sit with what's, so I'm reading a book right now called Anamkara, which is a, a um, a Celtic word, a Gaelic word, an Irish word for soul friend. It's by a poet, John O'Donohue, who passed away recently. And the last chapter of the book is about, uh, about death. And so I'm reading the last chapter right now. So I literally just read this today, but it was sort of, I didn't know that was going to be part of the book, but it was like, oh, okay, yep, this is probably the fourth or fifth time where I've heard a conversation or sat with this question or read an article about about the way that we have essentially as a culture commodified, we've even commodified mourning. We've even mm -hmm. commodified M-O-U-R, mourning. Like mm -hmm. we've commodified the space where people grieve or don't for the ones that they've lost. Uh, and he describes an Irish wake, a traditional Irish wake, the word wake to literally to be awake. And the idea is that you stay with the body of the departed through the, 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 the dark, quiet hours of the night in the early morning, because you want to ensure that, that that person's spirit or soul or essence or whatever it is you believe is there has safe passage from, from the temporal realm to the eternal realm. And so awake is literally about being with this, the passing of this person in a really sort of sense of like, it's a thing that didn't happen. It's a thing that's happening. And, um, of course, in the process, he talks about how, like, or maybe not of course, but in the process, you could imagine that you're, that people are talking to each other about this person. Maybe they're, maybe they're sharing a drink or, or a, a pipe or listening to a song that that person loved together. And so as much as the tradition is in name and in spirit about helping the person pass, by staying awake with them. It's also about like the grieving and the mourning and the processing of like what you need to do to say goodbye to this person, to actually have time to say goodbye to this person. And I just am like thinking about this as a dad right now. And as, as like, like, as a, what do I want for my funeral? What, what, what would I want my kids to, what experience would I want them to have? What do I want if my parents pass away and out there entering old age. And it's like a version of what you're, doing what you did with that store is to sort of say like don't go to the funeral home because the funeral home is the like 
is the consumer version of of the gap or whatever like you're not actually going to get what you what you or the person who's passed away needs so what would it look like to create a place where that 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 poor guy didn't have to come to a complete stranger to like there's a tr- there's a sort of be- there's a tragedy inside the beauty of what you just shared for me and I'm so mm-hmm. fucking glad that he had that space to came come to and what if in those 2 weeks you decided to put the pop-up store somewhere else and he didn't hear about it and he didn't and he couldn't get there cuz he was in a different city or whatever it was so I'm going to stop there I don't know what my question is but I just love to hear what mm. that evokes for you and brings up for you the mm. If he hadn't walked into the pop-up store, uh, that unprocessed grief may or may not have come out. And if it didn't come out, it would have lodged in his body somewhere and created uh, an inhibited self and it would have weighed him down Mm -hmm. uh, possibly for his whole life. Hmm. And that is the, that is what happens with repressed emotions for most of us. Uh, we are a, a, an emotionally very stupid and backward world. Yeah. And we have learned many wrong lessons about what to do about them. So the, tra- the tragedy is universal. Uh, most people spend most of their lives dodging most of their feelings. <laughs> mm. And like the biggest ones are the ones that we seem to have seemed to dodge them. <laughs> like the ones we most need to feel if there isn't any sort of hierarchy of need around these feelings that we're dodging. It's like, you gotta, you gotta grieve the people you love. Mm-hmm. And even better, you gotta make sure you tell them you love them and get, and say goodbye if you can before they go. Yeah. But I want to take less, put less pressure on the individual to do that right yeah and 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 put more attention on the culture um and what made that story possible is bailey's authentic desire and capacity to hold this man in his pain Mm. and my Mm. authentic desire and capacity to create a space where that was possible Mm. and those two things are essential for a healthy world when people are working from their authentic desire doing things that they genuinely have the capacity to do Mm. Mm. then things will flow the way they are meant to flow yeah so when somebody uh my my uncle died recently and i went to his funeral and i met with the funeral director and he had somber and compassionate down pat in form. He knew what it would look like to deeply care about my mother and my grief, Hmm. but he was not, and this is no fault of his, he was not in his heart. Mm -hmm. He was not genuinely engaged. Mm -hmm. And what that creates in us is this feeling of going through grieving in quotation marks, but not actually doing the grieving. Mm. So imagine a world where the person at the funeral home is somebody who has the authentic desire and the genuine capacity to hold you through this incredible experience. If we'd walked in and seen such a person at the funeral home, we would have burst into tears and hugs at that person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With the, the way that cousin did, the way that guy did with Bailey. Yeah. But we have other, culturally, we have other priorities beyond authentic desire and genuine capacity. Yeah. We don't prioritize authentic, authenticity, desire, capacity, need, love, connection. All of those things are pushed to the side. And what is being prioritized in that funeral director is money, routine, um, kind of form, like a form. We, we do this in, our, in, in, in everything in our culture 
where we push to the side the authentic underlying thing, and then we prioritize the form of it. Mm. And then we all pretend that that form is satisfying. Mm. So mm. it's like we're in this, cons- this delusional conspiracy. We do this in our politics, for instance, where politics could be the art of genuinely engaging with people's seemingly contradictory needs to, to sync them up into a healthy collective. It could be that. We can imagine that, but clearly it is not that. But then we all pretend that it is that. <laughs> we all go through this, this delusional story that maybe this politics will do this, but it clearly isn't that. It's just putting on the shirt of that, the form of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so grieving is where the rubber hits the road a lot because grief when we lose somebody close, that that pain, that feeling can be so intense and overwhelming that we really, really, really need to authentically experience it and authentically share it. And so when it runs up against the artifice, that gap becomes evident and painful. Yeah, yeah. Like the form simply, no matter how polished it is, for a feeling that intense simply can't actually hold it enough that you, you're like, you, it just still is like, no, I got to... I got to go to this random person and li- yeah, like, yes, I don't know why I came to you, but yeah. Okay. Yes. yes. Hold me while I listen to this song. It just is aching to get out. Yes. Yeah. And you know, that, that, that story that I started, it's like, it takes miracles to create something like that. It took a friend giving me five grand out of the blue. It took me having two weeks to do it. Like the whole system does not allow for that converse. Like I want to do something beautiful that holds people's hands and I don't want to charge them money. And I also don't want to spend the next three months writing PowerPoint decks proving to you why this is valuable because this is emerging through my heart and I will not deaden my heart through the cold system of your PowerPoint presentation. It's not going to happen. So you see me and you feel me and you support me or you don't. But the system is like, wow, go screw yourself. Who the hell do you think you are? We read PowerPoint <laughs> presentations. you know. And it's it's like, again, this constant tension between the the church of what wants to emerge mm. and the flat and stale culture that we've created. So yeah. essentially, I believe that the, the, the flat and stale culture that we've created in order to make the power structure feel safe in order to support the existing power structure. That's mm. the, the underlying ethos of it, I think. Mm. Yeah. And what I so appreciate about you in this conversation and about that story you use the word we're pretending a lot, which actually I think runs a little in a little bit of friction with what you're actually really saying, which is that we are kind of caught in a pretense, mm. right? Like we don't want to, like, we don't want to put the, like, why didn't you grieve for your cousin? Go see Bailey. Like, no, it's sort of just like, of course you didn't grieve for your cousin because you're caught yeah. in this pretense that you did everything you were supposed to. And yet you're still feeling this pain. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? And so I just really appreciate how you're modeling like in this conversation and also in that experience, there's a glimmer of, hey, what if, you know, we could do it different. You know, yes. we could do it more deeply and more truthfully. Did you know that? Uh, that's, that's all. I mean, you, you told me that your podcast is about asking people's for people's fiercest hope. Yeah. My fiercest hope is a paradigm shift to where what is most alive and true is the thing we orient around as obvious. That is my deepest hope. If we can get there, if we can make that the thing that we are striving for collectively, if that's the given, I feel like humanity is home free and we will have made it no matter what (laughs) happens next. And unless we wake up to that, I feel like we're going to experience yeah, I don't even want to paint the dark picture because so many people do it better than me, but the optimistic one, I feel like very clear about, can we orient around what is true and authentic? Can we do it? Mm. And mm. and how much pain will it take for us individually and collectively to orient around that? And what would it mean, my fantasy, what would it mean if the if the media ecosystem that is spewing all this toxin used all of these incredible pipes to get into people's unconscious. What if we use those pipes to communicate this other way of being 
that says that what you're feeling right now is real and true and worthy of attention. And instead of trying to meet your deep needs with shallow purchases, why don't you look to find people who can meet those deep needs authentically? And for those people who can meet those deep needs, how can we support them in meeting them? And like, just start constructing society, not around some abstract principle of what it should look like, but around the embodied moment to moment truth that each one of us feels. And that I believe that as we feel into more, each one of us we will see that we're all holding the same truth from different angles and it'll start syncing up. Oh man. Thank you for that. Yeah. Do you know who, do you know the work of Joanna Macy? Have you heard of her? No. Okay. You should definitely, definitely check her out. But she talks about this idea of building the new in the, in the shell of the old. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that, um, yeah, what am I trying to tap into here? <laughs> so there is a part of me that, and, and you alluded to this, and I want to actually anchor in your, in, and what you said, which is like, we could go down the, the dark path. And I think the headline of the dark path is if it's true that individually our pain is telling us something and we can either choose to learn from that pain or resist it. Either way, it's there. Either way, it's going to keep growing unless we work with mm-hmm. it and let it move through. Then there's a collective analogy that collectively at some point, all of this pain we are feeling in the collective field of human experience is either going to produce the breakthrough that we need to go to the metaphorical lake in Sweden that we all need to go to as, as a species and figure out that new space or we're gone. Right. Like that sort of simply put as I can, that sort of seems to be the collective challenge we have ahead of us. And then it's easy for me to get swept up into the like, oh man, we're just like, we don't have a shot in hell. Like, just look at the news, just look at the, but, 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 but like, there's all these reasons why it's not going to happen. Actually, it's really easy to think of all the reasons why, but what I love about what you're inviting us into and what your, what your pop-ups modeled is you took the new, which of course is really ancient, like connection, empathy, community, tribe, and you put it right inside the shell of, of what is now the kind of aging, archaic way of understanding the storefront. And, and I wonder if, as you sit with that possibility, so, so to let, let you go further into not the dark, but into the optimism, what sort of is, how are you relating to like, what's the collective shell or armor, the carapace, like it's almost like the sort of insect shell that's been hollowed out and we can now like go start to live inside of it. It's just, I wonder how you're relating to that. What are some other spaces that you're aware of or that if you could wave a magic wand, you would go to, to start to like build what you're describing inside of the Mm. civilizational shell that we're all inhabiting right now. Mm. There's my, there's my role and where I feel personally most called, like what's most alive in me. Yeah. And then I'm, aware that other people are going to feel motivated to work in other parts of this shell. So maybe I'll talk first about my, where I feel most called ultimately. Yeah. Um, But I don't, I don't think that it's any more or less important than somebody called to work in other fields. But for, for me, as I was alluding to earlier, media um, Mm. uh, is where my heart goes. Um, I, I have this question that I've been asking for years, which is what if we sold connection, empathy, authenticity, healing, honesty, integrity at this same scale and using some of the same tools that Coca-Cola uses to sell sugar water? (laughs) Yeah. What if we repurposed all of these screens that are primarily used to suck our attention in order to monetize us, what if we use those screens to bring about transformation truly? Mm. What would that look like? Mm. And I can feel what that would look like. I can feel it. I can feel that there are 
millions of brilliant artists who are working from their heart and who have within them blueprints in different forms for this other world that we want to see painters and songwriters and poets who know what the world needs to look like through their lens and would love nothing more than to offer it. And I know that there are billions of us who are tapped into these screens, who are craving that so deeply. And what if the mediators of those two things, the people who own the machines that feed us the garbage right now, awoke, either awoke to the power of their medium in an authentic way or stepped aside mm. and allowed people like me to hold that space. Mm. Mm. And we created in these tubes, this <laughs> flow of love. Yeah. And it could literally be like, imagine if you're driving down the street and billboards literally said things like, you are loved or your feelings matter, or <laughs> what if you were watching uh, TV and a 30 second commercial came up that was just an appreciation of nature mm. with no other agenda, selling mm. you nothing, mm. but th where the media itself became a gift. Like, wh what, if, what if Mark Zuckerberg woke up tomorrow and realized that he no longer had the moral authority or the heart to run the town square of the world and that the best thing he could do would be to stand aside and to invite a whole other intelligence to take over Facebook and orient around people's truest needs. Just that question, what if we oriented around people's truest needs? Mm. What would mm. that mean? It mm. scrambles the brain. It would force people to go, what are their needs? And how do we create a, a, a town square that meets them? Mm. So that's, that's, my, that's, that's where I feel most drawn. Like that's where my excitement lies. But I know those same questions are true in areas I know much less about. Um, all this lands that is being laid waste by large corporations where there are brilliance and um, heart-centered people who have true expertise in how to resuscitate lands mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how to love it mm -hmm. into productivity mm -hmm. and dialogue. And what would it mean for corporations who run and own lots of land and believe they're doing well by merely productively raping it? What would it mean for them to wake up to that and not transform? I do not believe that people who have been in a destructive mindset for 20 years can wake up one day and change what they're doing in a way that is healing for the rest of us. I don't believe that's possible. But I do believe that those people who have been doing that might step into the maturity and the wisdom and the heart to step away and to hand the keys of their power to those of us who are ready to step into it with heart, with integrity, and with authenticity. And so that won't be my job to help people transform land because land is not how I speak natively. I speak media and communications natively. Mm -hmm. But for those people who do speak land natively, I want to work arm in arm with you by putting a camera on you and helping spread your wisdom. And I want to eat your food and be nourished by it. And so each piece of that puzzle uh, has, has, a, has people who are going to be called to step into it whether that's finance or health or pick your industry or pick your world, we're going to need the people who are currently in charge to acknowledge the damage that they've done, acknowledge that they have been irresponsible and step away. And we are going to need people who are ready with integrity and authenticity and capacity and desire to step into it. That's, that's my fiercest hope. Uh, yeah. Oh man. Mm. <laughs> David, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. And that also feels like a wonderfully powerful way to finish today. Hmm. Hmm. So unless, unless 
what wants to come through or come out or come alive has anything else to say today, then maybe we can pause here and talk again. I think I have one more thing to say. Yeah, Um, please, please. Which is like, my heart has been broken many times by imagining the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible to quote Charles Eisenstein, who many of us love. Yeah. Um, It breaks again and again. It breaks every time I um, interact with a mainstream media company and I see once more that they are not interested in what I'm talking about unless it meets their metrics. And I want to acknowledge my own pain in trying to communicate these ideas to a world that is not receptive to it. And I want to acknowledge the pain of people listening who feel in their bones that what I'm saying is true, but then will walk out and engage with a world where it seems inconceivable. Mm. Mm. And I can't, I'm not yet embodied enough to bridge that gap fully. Like I can't hold all of our hands through that journey. I can't even fully hold my own, but at the very least I want, to witness that, to acknowledge that, to be with that. It hurts that the world values things that are so bad so often. And that pain that we feel needs witnessing and tending to, too. That was my last thought. Mm. 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 Thank you, David. Thank you. Yeah, I hope that whoever hears this feels in your words and in your space that that you helped us create today a, a, at least a a glimmer or a taste of that witnessing. Mm. And uh and a sense maybe that they are not as alone as it can sometimes feel when we try and take a stand for the kind of world you described. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. All right. This, let's see. Yeah. Where should people go if they want to just hear from you more or learn more about you? Um, you can go to, you can wait for my next book to come out. But in the meanwhile, um, empath.nyc is a good start. Empath.nyc. And on Instagram, I'm at, at empathnyc. And if you want to go down the rabbit hole of me, you can go to davidsavage.com, which has a lot of my different pieces assembled semi-coherently yeah. for your entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> and your, your wonderful volume, Healing Heals the Heal- Healers too. Yeah, Healing yeah. Heals the Healer too. It's a book that I uh, published just a few months ago. It uh, is about largely about my journey from depressed, struggling filmmaker to empath. And it's also just got a lot of pearls of wisdom in it that I got along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I hope lots of people connect to it. I guess maybe the last thing I want to say, I'm thinking of that moment that you described with Bailey and we talked a lot about the man who came in, but like that must've been such a gift for Bailey to know that she could hold that. And for you to like know that she could hold that and to just bear witness to it. I felt so good watching that happen. I felt <laughs> so good having created that space and watching it, watching it. I felt so good watching the space do exactly what it was meant for. I felt so good empowering somebody to give their gift. How many people in the world have the gift of empathy to give and how often do we get to give it? And yeah. so for Bailey to just give it so beautifully felt really good and i know for bailey she felt so alive from it she you know she felt so good having like yeah like oh like she's living you're living your purpose maybe one of the it's maybe the best feeling that (laughs) that a person could feel is to feel that aliveness Mm -hmm. around purpose and gift and service Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I, I I really am sitting in that right now and, and I'm so grateful to you and I can't wait to talk more again. 
Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, David. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.